blocking them on your phones, however you do that these days, and you can turn to the book of Psalms. We're going to be taking a look at different Psalms throughout the summer. This week, I was watching uh, the NBA playoffs, and so they're in the semifinals, and the Denver Nuggets won, and they're headed to the championship, and the announcer said something I couldn't believe, that in the entire history of the Denver Nuggets, they have never once made it to the championship. Not a single time. And so I looked it up, y'all. They've been playing basketball since 1967. Now, raise your hand if you weren't born yet in 1967, okay? So longer than most of us have been alive, they've been trying. Y'all think about the countless hours and work that's gone into it, the literal billions of dollars spent trying to get better at basketball so they can win a championship. And y'all, they are knocking on the door. They're headed to the first championship. And I hear this, that's unbelievable. But then I thought, wait a minute, who won the championship last year? And it took me a second. I'm like, what? Does anybody remember? Who won the NBA championship last year? The Warriors. That's right. Somebody said it. The Warriors. I remember, okay, fine. Okay, it's the Warriors. And then I thought, wait, wait a minute, who won the year after that? And I thought and thought, and y'all, I could not remember to save my life. Does anyone remember two years ago? I know Cale with his encyclopedic knowledge. Who was it? Yep, the Milwaukee Bucks. Y'all, I looked that up and I was like, there's no way. I went to the wrong website. I have no memory of that whatsoever. Which means... This time next year, let's say the Denver Nuggets, they do it. They make it to their first championship. They win the championship. All the billions of dollars, all the decades, all the time pays off. This time next year, most of us will have a hard time even remembering that. And two years from now, almost no one will remember. But what if I said, what, what if I gave everyone here a test, okay? So let's think about the highest achievements in our culture. You would think, surely, we could just remember the past five years, okay? So let's say we all took a test. Okay, who can list the past five NBA champions? The past five Super Bowl winners? The past five, what about the past five winners of the, the Oscar for Best Picture? What about the past five Olympic gold medalists in, in pick your event? Y'all... I would do very poorly at that test. And I'm guessing most of you would too, which tells me that most of what we consider our highest achievements are forgotten no more than five years from the time you achieve them. But there's another test I could give you. I bet there's another test I could give you that everyone would make 100 on. What if I asked you to just name five people who made a difference in your life? Name five people who taught you something about the Lord. Well, my guess is we'd all make 100 on that test, wouldn't we? Seems, it seems like the people who teach us about the Lord seem to make a bigger impact on our life, don't they? No matter who it was, and I'm guessing when I ask you that, some faces came to your mind. No matter who it was, it was probably different people for all of us. Some of us probably had some of the same people in common, but all of them had two things in common, two loves. They loved God and they loved you. And through that, because they loved God and they loved you, the gospel came to you. You learned about who the Lord is and you began to follow him. 
And I would submit to you, not only is that a way or the best way that the gospel spreads, I would submit to you that is the only way the gospel spreads. That's how God has designed it to work. And it's the same process we see in my favorite psalm. Psalm 145 is what we're going to look at today. And here's our big idea for the psalm. Your worship creates worshipers. Your worship creates worshipers. Let's read. We're going to read the whole psalm, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds those who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. I once heard a song, put Psalm 145 to music, and the title of the song was The Song of a God Admirer. And that's what this is. It's, it's written by King David, and it's just him gushing forth praise and admiration of who God is. There's a few things unique about this psalm. And so in all the psalms, all of them, it's the only one that in the original text, it includes the inscription, a song of praise. Now, y'all think about that. Think of all the praise that is found in the book of Psalms, and this is the only one that has that title. It's in a very strategic place. And so a lot of people say it's a summary of all the 144 books that come before it. It's kind of a, a summary of all that it has taught us about who God is. And it's kind of an introduction to what comes next. So all the Psalms after it are praise Psalms. They, the next few, they all begin and end with hallelujah. It's worship songs. And so this Psalm, it's kind of the introduction to this praise that overflows after we've learned about all that God is. It's also an acrostic. And that means each line begins with a successive letter 
in the Hebrew alphabet. And so it's literally an alphabet of praise is what this, this chapter is. Now, they did that for a reason. It's an educational device. It's so you can memorize it. It's so you could teach, or, teach it to your kids. And so this was written to teach each generation to repeat the praise that's found within it. The purpose, the purpose of writing it, the purpose of the praise is its multiplication. We want to make sure everyone can know the glory of who God is. So he starts off in the first three verses. He's talking about God's greatness. Now, great is kind of an overused word lately. I mean, I, I thought just over the past couple of weeks, what have I described as great? Well, pizza, uh, a movie, some jokes, some athletes, I've described all those things as great. That's not what David's talking about here. He's talking about an eternal greatness. And so that's why he repeats the phrase twice, forever and ever. Forever and ever. Now think about this. This is King David writing this. The greatest king in all of Israel, maybe even the greatest king in all of history. And he's saying, I, this king, I'm going to worship that king forever and ever. He's saying, here's the difference between me and him. I'm just a temporary king. He is an eternal king. He is a king forever and ever. And so he says his greatness is unsearchable. This is amazing to me. So forever and ever, we will be learning about God's greatness and we'll never uncover it all. We'll never figure it all out for all of eternity. You know, everyone's kind of freaking out these days about AI and the computers are getting smarter than us. Even the computers... They can run and calculate for all eternity, and they will never calculate all of the greatness of God. We will keep uncovering more and more and more of it for all eternity. And so here's what I think he's doing. The author, right up front, right to begin with, he's speaking into exactly what Mike reminded us about when we prayed, the changelessness of God. And he is speaking into your anxiety your hopelessness, your despair, your fear of change, whatever it is. Because when you come here and you read Psalm 145, your cynicism melts away. Because if it's true, no matter, no matter how lost you feel, no matter how stuck you feel, if it's true that this really is an eternal king, if his greatness really is unsearchable, then that means you have not experienced the end of his greatness yet. There's still more for you. And if it's true that you really will be declaring his praise forever and ever, well, that means whatever you're in the middle of right now, it's not final. It's just temporary. Your circumstances here and now are not as final as they claim to be. And so as long as we have a forever and ever unsearchable greatness, God, we have hope. But notice he says something. He says, you have to decide to praise. He says, I will praise God. Now, your decision isn't if you will praise, but what you will praise. Because men and women, everybody praises something. We're created to do it. It's in our DNA. We all want to praise something. Look no farther than our celebrity culture, where you can be famous just to be famous. You didn't actually accomplish anything. How is that possible? Well, it's because literally 
Billions of people are hungry, are starving to praise something bigger than themselves. That's why all of our biggest buildings, the modern day cathedrals, are our stadiums where we can pack in and we can all cheer and praise something together. So everyone, everyone begins this sentence just like David. I will praise. The difference between people is how they finish that sentence. What will you praise? What have you decided to praise this morning? What is truly great to you? Do you get more excited about great plays on the football field or great movies or even some delicious pizza than you do about the forever and ever eternal king of the universe? You know, I think Listen, there's plenty of times I know I struggle to praise, and I think sometimes people, the reason people struggle to praise is not because they doubt God's greatness, but they doubt his goodness. And so that's where the psalmist turns his attention next, to the goodness of God. Because we know, we kind of get it sometimes. God is all-powerful. He can do anything. But does he care about little old me? And the psalmist, King David here, he says, this is good news. This infinitely great and majestic and powerful God is also good. In fact, he is more good than most of us could ever dream. So verse 8 and 9, it's all about God's character. This is not just what he does. This is who he is. This is his personality. He says he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, that may sound familiar, that phrase, because it's one of the most common phrases, one of the most quoted sayings about God in the Old Testament. And over and over again, the Old Testament says this is the core of who God is. And he he self-reveals himself in this way in key, important moments throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you one example. Exodus 34. God is renewing his covenant. He's writing the Ten Commandments for the second time. And God is just asked to see his glory. And so as Moses hides in the cleft of the rock, God passes by. And right after that, this is what God says about himself. This is what he tells his friend, his friend Moses. I'm gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is who I am, Moses. That word steadfast love, it's one word, it's hesed. It means loyal love. You may see it translated faithful love or unfailing love. Some people say, and I might agree, it is the most important word in the Old Testament. It's used over 250 times. And this love, it's, it's love in the context of covenant. It's used when, to communicate that God has married himself to you. And this is how you know his love is steadfast. His love will not fail because the God of the universe has bound himself to you. You belong to him. And so in Exodus 34, when he he says that about himself to Moses, you know what's just happened? Moses left for like five minutes to go get the words of God. And so the whole nation of Israel said, now's the perfect time for us to practice some idolatry. Let's make us some golden calves. And so Moses comes back down, and in a fit of rage, he takes God's words, and he throws it on the ground, and he destroys it. And now, it's kind of embarrassing, he's got to hike back up the mountain and try to figure out, does this covenant still stand? Is God still going to be our God, or is he going to be done with the whole thing? That's when, that's when the God of the universe says, I have married myself to you. 
My love is steadfast, unfailing, loyal love. In verse 9, he says, you know what? But God's goodness, it extends to his whole creation. Everything he has made experiences some level of his goodness. We call this common grace. So even the worst person you can think of, serial killers, wicked tyrants, they get to see and experience God's goodness through the provision of his creation. None of us, none of us are owed anything, and yet every day, by grace alone, we have air in our lungs, we have food to eat, we have water to drink, we even see the beauty of a sunset. So everyone receives beauty and provision from God through his creation. You know, probably the most common struggle people have believing in God is called the, the problem of evil. You know, how, if God is good, how can evil exist? And I understand, that, that's hard to understand sometimes. But I think that's not actually the greatest problem. The greatest problem isn't the problem of evil, it's the problem of good. How could a good, holy God allow sinful people to experience his goodness every day? And the answer, the only answer to that is grace. It's all grace and everyone experiences it. So then he shifts to God's rule. He has no equal, he has no rival. Verse 10 through 13, he says, God is never not in control. And so he stresses God's kingdom. He talks about God's kingdom four times in these three verses. And what he's trying to help us understand is, y'all, there are no challengers for God's reign. There will never be any successors to God's reign. Something's interesting here. So verse 13, the king Nebuchadnezzar, you remember him from Daniel chapter 4? King Nebuchadnezzar actually quotes Psalm 145, 13. You may remember the story. You know, he built this vast, most powerful kingdom in the land at the time, and he thought he was a big deal. In fact, he thought he should be worshipped, and he demanded that everyone worshipped him. And God said, oh, we're going to see about that. And for seven years, the Bible says, he had to live outside and eat grass like an oxen. He, he was like a beast. And that got Nebuchadnezzar's attention. This prideful pagan king became a God admirer because he realized, wait a minute, whoa, 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 I'm not in charge here. He is. And you know, it's the same for all of us. Each and every one of us one day will realize that God is in control, that this is all his. It is not mine. We will all, every tongue will confess that his dominion endures through all generations. Some of us can do it the easy way. Some of us will do it the hard way. And so some of you here this morning, you may be a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar where God has